are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. This is uh, our final segment of our New Testament series, uh, looking at the letters to the Apostle that the Apostle Paul wrote. And uh, in your Bible, there's a large section in the New Testament that was written to churches and people that was written by the Apostle Paul. They include Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then we're going to conclude tonight with the last two remaining, Titus and Philemon. Now, Again, let me just reiterate that those are not in chronological order when you look at them in your New Testament. Those are just really in uh, quantity order. It's, it's the largest writing to the smallest writing, so we're concluding with Philemon tonight. I would also add that there are some scholars who believe um, that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, I would say that I'm about 70 or 80% on that, uh, So, but I'll usually reference it as the writer of the book of Hebrews, but I personally lean towards believing that Paul wrote that book just because of some of the language, the content, the, the understanding of Judaism, and even how he concludes that book, and I'll make mention of that tonight in our conclusion. But our first letter that we want to look at tonight is the letter to Titus. Uh, Let's consider the relationship between Paul and Titus. So Paul is going to write to a guy by the name of Titus. He's similar to Timothy uh, that we referenced a couple weeks ago. Titus is mentored or was mentored by Paul. And uh, let me go through some things real quick and, and we'll move hurriedly through this. During Paul's first missionary journey, a young man by the name of Titus heard Paul preach about Jesus. Now, Titus was a Greek. Remember, uh, Timothy was half Greek, but Titus was a full Greek. He had not grown up around the worship of God or the worship of the God of the Old Testament. He knew nothing of it. But as he listened to Paul, Titus his heart responded to the message and the, the, the idea of Jesus Christ. And so he responded to this. And Paul ended up mentoring him and discipling him and brought him to Jerusalem to show the apostles and other Jewish believers how a Greek, a non-Jew, would come to know the Lord. It was like as if Titus was kind of the show and tell of the event. He was, Paul was demonstrating that God had brought salvation to someone like Titus. Titus then would continue to travel with the Apostle Paul on different missionary journeys. He would help then in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during uh, the three years that Paul was in Ephesus, this would have been his third missionary journey, Titus was with him. And it was from here that Paul sent Titus, Titus to Corinth. Now, this map, you, you're not probably going to be able to read. You can see the Mediterranean Sea, and there's blue and yellow up there. Uh, That's where Corinth is. Corinth's up there where that that blue and yellow in the middle is. And this is where Paul sent him. And he sent him there, and you can read about this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul sends Titus there to handle some tension. Imagine tension being in church. For those of you who maybe are new to church or new to the Calvary Church, there is tension that happens in the church, and and Paul uh, sends Titus to handle this. You see then that Paul trusted Titus and had a lot of confidence in him as a leader. So then Paul, he uh, ends up in prison. He's released from prison, and they travel some more. They end up arriving at a at a little island called Crete, and it's right there in the middle of your screen under the, or above the word sea, and it's there that 
Paul and Titus would begin to develop and develop churches in these towns in this island, and ultimately, Paul would decide to leave. He's going to go to, to leave, and he wants to go back to Corinth, and so he leaves Titus there to begin establishing uh, the Christians and the church in that area. Now, cons- let's, let's look at this little island and talk about this little island because there's some interesting things about it that I think help you understand uh, the writing of the letter to Titus. Crete was a large island off of uh, the coast of Greece, so we've circled it in red there. You can see it right in the middle. It spans about uh, 38 miles wide in the north and south area. East and west, it's about 161 miles long. So it's this, this island. There's another view of it. Uh, it's kind of uh, in comparison to the rest of where Paul and uh, Titus would have been traveling. It's kind of small, but it was, it was pretty important in uh, that area. It had a culture about it. There was what was known as the Cretan culture, and it was notorious in the ancient world. We often read in Paul's letters about sexual immorality or drunkenness, and this was common in Roman and Greek culture and would have been prevalent in Crete as well. But we know the island cities and uh, different areas of that known world were plagued by violence. They were plagued by sexual corruption and different things like that. But Crete had another reputation. And one of the Greek words for being a liar was kretizo, which meant to be a Cretan. So after some archaeological digs on an island, a drawing was uncovered of an ancient person from Crete. And I want to show you what that look like. (laughs) That's what they were notorious for. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers sold to the highest bidder, and they were simply corrupt. You could not trust them. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors. So we saw that picture of that island. There were harbors, and these harbors served cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. So go back to, I'm sorry, this is not in the notes, but go back to the original map that I showed. You can see Crete right there in the middle, and you can kind of see where, how that fit as a harbor uh, island. There were cities around Crete that had harbors for ships to go all through that area. And from Paul's point of view, Crete was a perfect place. And I think this is interesting. As notorious as they were, he felt like it was the perfect place to have a network of churches. And when we think of starting churches or we think of evangelism, evangelism sometimes I think we can view it uh, as simply looking for people who could easily respond to the Word of God. Who can easily respond to the Word of God? Let me talk to them. But Paul saw something bigger in the equation. He saw this ability for people to travel through the known world, and he thought that Crete would be a great place to establish churches. And so he used Titus to help him do this. So let's look at the letter to Titus. It can be easily broken down into four sections. The first I want to look at is uh, the introduction. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, and if you have your Bible, I encourage you to to highlight some verses or, or read along. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, look at this little phrase, who never lies. He's all, he, he hasn't got very far in this, and he's going to go ahead and address this idea of lying. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our, fa- our, our Savior to Titus, my true child in, com- in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's writing to Titus. He says, my true child in common faith, meaning he had mentored. He had brought Titus to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and had brought him into the church. So there's your introduction. The second section of the letter is really, it has to do with, okay, Titus, I'm writing you, and here's why I'm writing to you. There's two reasons. Number one, I need you to appoint elders. A modern-day word for elder is pastor. So what we term pastors in a lot of the American culture of church is really uh, uh, what Paul uses the term elder. He's telling Titus, appoint elders, and then confront false teachers, two different things, and we're not going to dive deep into both of those, but they're two very important things, to appoint elders and to confront false teachers. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we see the importance of order in the church, and it's something that we find very valuable to our church today, not just the Calvary Church, but in the church as a whole. Paul was careful to have order. He gives qualifications for leadership, and this principle is built into the fabric of the Calvary Church. We realize that everyone has a role to play, but growth and maturity matter to that role in the body of Christ. So we are careful to honor this. So passages like James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's talking about this need for maturity. And so Paul is telling Titus, hey, put in order elders, but not just anybody. Make sure that they're mature, that they can handle what's coming to them, and they can present the gospel in a way that addresses false teaching. And so then he tells him to deal with false teaching. He, he tells him to confront them that are causing confusion. And we don't know the details completely of this, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan teachers. They claimed they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches with false teaching, specifically requiring things from the Jewish law that were not required for salvation. And we see this a lot in Paul's writings, but it had made its way to this island. And so Paul instructs Titus to not just appoint elders and pastors, but also to confront false teaching. And I think this is an important principle for us in uh, the Christian world and in our own faith that not only does God want to point us to do a task, but sometimes we are called to confront error. And that may be with uh, someone we know, that may be uh, in a church context, that may be in a private context, but uh, we realize that Paul was telling him to address this. I don't think he was telling him to just be mean about it, but to, to point out to them that this is not what Christ required. And so Paul instructs Titus to do this, and he makes a cultural reference here from a philosopher named Epimedes. Epimedes, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, He says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's a great reputation. I've heard people say that about Cleveland, and I do not agree. This testimony, he said, he, he, he references the philosopher, and then he says, yeah, that's kind of true. That's, that's true. Therefore, and he's meaning it in context here about their false teaching. 
This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He said they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, I'm going to come back to that because that's a very important statement he says. They profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's harsh, but that's what he said. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, the the third section of the letter really deals with the importance of their witness on the island, their actual works. So he tells them that they've denied God by their works, and then he's going to address some works. And so he reminds the churches on the island to live in a way, not just profess in a way, but live in a way that honors God and not just live by their carnal instincts. And he's going to instruct them on the importance of good works in everyday life. He addresses their roles in households and culture. And uh, you can read it. We're not going to dive deep into it. But he addresses different demographics. He talks to older women. He talks to older men. He talks to younger women. He talks to younger men. In younger men, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So he's not just saying believe certain things. He's saying let that faith be expressed in what people see you doing every day. And he even talks to bondservants. He talks to slaves, and he says, You are to be submissive to your master in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, again, I don't believe Paul is condoning, he's not advocating for slavery. And that has been misconstrued over the years, and I'm going to I I can show that to you later. We're going to talk about it, uh, slavery, in just a minute. But Paul is even getting down to those who are slaves to say that your witness matters. You are of, of no value to society. They treat you like no value, but how you handle that matters. And so he says, uh, he, he challenges them with this idea. And then he says, uh, really, he's, he kind of turns it then that, and is establishing the fact that nothing Christ does in us should be without consequence or effect in our life. Nothing that Christ does for us should be without consequence or effect in our life why Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit. If you receive the Spirit, there should be a consequence for that. There should be an effect that comes from the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. What are the gifts of the Spirit? A gift from God that should have an impact in how you live. Everything God does for us should result in action. Everything God does for us and has done for us should result in action. Newton's third law of motion. For every action or force in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I would call it God's law. Salvation. If God gave you salvation, he brought the force of salvation in your life, there should be an equal action or reaction. Mercy, if he's brought that into your life, if he's brought grace into your life, all of that should have an opposite reaction, not opposite in contrast to God, but understanding that he's causing, calling us to be opposite of the sin that we were living. And so it should have a consequence or an action. 
Salvation should move us away from sin. Mercy should move us away from hatred. Because of what we understand about God's mercy in our own life, it should move us to not hate people, but to love people. Grace, God's favor, should move us away from selfishness. It should have an action in our life. So Paul says to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Undeserved. But what does grace do? Because grace should have a reaction in your life. He said, grace trains us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in, not in the world to come. He's not challenging these Christians to live self-controlled and free from the passions of the world in heaven. He's saying in this present world, because grace has been given to you, there should be a reaction in your life, and it trains you, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, what? For good works. He's calling them to good works, not as a means of salvation, not as a means to receive God's love, but as a reflection of God's love in their life so that they can bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ on that lying island. He said, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The very next verse, then he says in verse number one of chapter three, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Can I just say it real simply? You wearing this mask is a good work. Give yourselves a hand. You deserve it. Yeah, I figured it'd be that kind of applause, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and Charlotte is our, our resident mask police. She will let you know if your mask is not high enough on your face, just so you know. I'm just saying. She is confronting the evil. But he said, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Not as a means of salvation, but wow, what a reflection of the grace of God. Action of grace, the action of grace causes me to live differently. The action of grace should cause a reaction in my life. And so... He talks about salvation, and for sake of time, I won't go into the, all of that. Titus 3, you can read about that in Titus 3. But the final section he gives is Paul's personal remarks. Um, Paul's personal remarks. And he comes back to this idea of good works, even in his final remarks. He says, do your best to s speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. He's talking about a contribution. He's talking about giving financially to help them. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That generosity, your giving, your tithe, your offering, your giving to missions, all these things are a good work. It's a good work. And it pleases God. And it makes a difference in the kingdom of God. So your faith in Christ causes, should cause you to respond in faith. The final letter of Paul 
we'll move on to the next letter, is the smallest letter that he wrote. It's called Philemon. It's made up of just 335 words. One chapter, they put it in one chapter, it has 25 verses. So if you want to feel good and feel like you read a chapter, you read a whole book, (laughs) read Philemon. Text somebody and say, yeah, I read a book of the Bible today. But it's small, but it is so rich, and it's equally as challenging to consider as all of Paul's other letters, I believe. First, it's the most personal letter that Paul would write. It is written primarily to a man named Philemon who lived in Colossae. Others are listed, a woman named Aphia and a man named Archippus and Mentions the house, the, the church that's in a house. So it has a very small and personal application and a very specific application. Philemon was a wealthy man. And Paul's writing to him. And we know that Philemon is wealthy because he is a slave owner. In Roman society, it took significant wealth to own a slave. And he would have been, be, been considered the high class of his culture. Slavery was an accepted practice, and it was a reality in ancient Roman culture. People were slaves for different reasons. It is believed that there were two kinds of slaves that existed in Rome. Some were contractual, and many were forced. So a slave was a slave because they had been captured in war, predominantly. They were born, or they were born to a slave mother, or they had committed a crime. And there were also slaves who were slaves because they had gotten into debt, and they needed to repay their debt, so they sold themselves into slavery. But what's important for us to understand here is that slavery was everywhere, in Roman society. It was everywhere in Roman society. Some estimates say one out of five, or even as high as one out of three people were slaves. Slaves worked everywhere. We think maybe that they had these difficult tasks, and some did, but many were Uh, used in private households. They worked in factories. They worked in farms. And they helped with engineering of roads and aqueducts and buildings. Remember, they were captives from other countries. So they once had been maybe prominent in their country. They might have once been wealthy themselves, but they were enslaved. And so they had knowledge. They had understanding that the Roman government did not want to throw away And so they would use them for projects, and they would use them in different ways, and they leveraged them. They were even used as philosophers, and they were uh, used to help understand medicine, and they were used to teach subjects. They were everywhere in society, and as a result, they merged easily into the population. In fact... Some say that slaves look so similar to Roman citizens that the Senate once considered a plan to have them wear special clothing so they could be identified as a slave. But the Senate voted against it, and you know why? Because they realized that if they let other slaves know how many slaves there actually were, they were concerned about a revolt. And so... This reason you see Paul addressing slavery over and over in his writings because it was a way of life and it was just how things were. And we see in, we saw in first, I think, Timothy chapter four, where Paul was not for slavery by capture. He wasn't slavery by, uh, for slavery by compulsion. And uh, in, in fact, there were, there were slaves that, that were gladiators. You read about them. But he wasn't, he wasn't for this constraint of people against their will. But he understood that it was a part of the culture. 
And it was part of what he had to address. And so he would speak to slaves and owners of slaves. And he would use the slavery metaphor because he understood it would so easily connect with their culture. And so what's important to understand, I believe, is that the Christian life was not just for the elite. But we see Paul having to deal with slaves and owners because slaves and owners were both getting saved. And now what? Now what's supposed to happen? How are they supposed to interact now that they are both saved and they're both in the same church? And so it's a challenging thought, isn't it? Because of what we understand about slavery and the the horrendous uh, historical reality of America's uh, sense of slavery. But Paul addresses it here, and he's addressing a guy by the name of Philemon, who was a slave owner, a very wealthy man, and he has this very specific reason he's writing this letter And what the reason is that Philemon's slave had run away, had escaped. And Paul, we don't know how. I I, I kind of imagine just trying to understand it, that somehow Paul and his being a prisoner somehow came into interaction with this slave, Onesimus. And he has this interaction, and I I don't know how it came up in subject, but have you ever been in a conversation where you connected the dots? Like, oh, you know that person? I know that person. I I think that's what happens with Paul. he, He witnesses to Onesimus, and he shares with him the gospel, and Onesimus is saved, and I don't know what happened in that conversation. All of a sudden, he realized he knows where Onesimus is from. And in fact, Onesimus shares with him that actually I, I've run away from my slave owner. And Paul knows he's saved in Colossae. And so Paul's going to have to figure out what do we do about this. And so when Paul writes, he writes in Philemon chapter 1 verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Remember how he called Titus? His child, son in the gospel, he's referencing the same thing, that Onesimus, he has brought him to maturity in Christ, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So somehow they connected. Now, I kind of think that maybe it happened while they were, while, while maybe Onesimus was working in the prison or doing something, and Paul had a conversation with him. But we don't know, but he came to Christ while Paul was in prison In verse 11, formerly, he was useful to you. Formerly, he was useful to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. They think that's interesting. And while we don't know why Onesimus was not with Philemon, we don't know why he ran away or left, we understand that it was a very serious and dangerous offense for a slave to run from a slave owner. We don't know if he was mistreated. It's possible Philemon could have mistreated him. It's also possible that he could have done something wrong, and he knew that punishment was coming. But Paul says to to Philemon, he said, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. That's how close he saw Onesimus. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. I'm not going to take something that was yours. And then Paul really makes very personal application to the situation. He says, Philemon, would you consider taking him back without penalty or punishment? He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, 
as a beloved brother. What a challenge. I'm going to give back what was yours, but it's not going to look the same. And he's challenging him to, to take him back, but not just take him back, take him back as a brother. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Ultimately, Paul says to Philemon, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He puts Onesimus in the same category as the apostle Paul. Remember, Paul's the one who says, avoid trying to find certain seats in the synagogue that make you look good. Imagine if the Apostle Paul were to walk in here. We know how we treat leaders and pastors. I've experienced that where I'm treated differently because I'm a pastor. I've been treated differently at times. I've had conversations with people that were talking to me a certain way, and then they find out I'm a pastor. I have people that have... When I, was, when I was youth president, I went to a world evangelism headquarters in St. Louis, and I was having a conversation with somebody. I won't say who or where or what, whatever was going on, but I was having a conversation, and a person came up to me, and they just kind of like, hey, and we're talking, and then they found out I was youth president. Oh, hey, let's talk. All of a sudden, the conversation changed. It was a, a little bit different because I had recognition, and so Paul was saying, if I were to come there to Colossae, how would you treat me? Would you set out a table? Think, would, if the Apostle Paul came to your house, what would you do? But what if the, the a homeless guy came to your house? How would you treat him? Would you set out the table and spread it out? Paul's challenging that idea. So if you consider me a partner... Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is demonstrating the love of Christ to Onesimus and to Philemon. This is such a personal letter, and this letter demonstrates for us the, the vitality of not just hearing the word of God, not just knowing the word of God, but making very personal application to what you know. No matter how challenging it may be, in this letter, Paul was not speaking in generalities about we should love one another. He wasn't pontificating about the fact that there's no difference between Jews and Greeks, slave or free. He's not pontificating about that. Paul was giving opportunity, very personal opportunity for the practice of the gospel, not just the presentation of the gospel. So I conclude our series tonight encouraging you to make the truth of God's word personal. Don't let it just be some theory you talk about. Don't let it be some philosophy that you say you believe. How is God's word changing how you live and how I live? How is it changing how you treat people? How is what God has done for you changing how you view people? In this cultural environment, how is the gospel changing how you interact with people from different races? How is it impacting you in how you are interacting with different language groups? Are they the family of God? If they're not in your culture, can you still see them as the family of God? And not just God's family, but your family. Because the question is, Paul says to Philemon, will you receive him? Not will you acknowledge him, will you receive him? And Pastor Kristen spent some time on this, and it keeps coming back over and over. The power of receiving people in your life. Let me ask it in a very modern way. Are you having meals with people of different races, 
of different language groups, of different ethnicities, of different cultural statuses. That's what Paul would say to us today. Are you receiving them into your life? Philemon, receive Onesimus. Bring him in. I want to say something a little bit strange. I I kind of think maybe you agree or don't, but if you don't or won't have a meal with somebody, you haven't received them. I haven't dove completely into scripture on that, but boy, you can see a lot of things to do with eating and being with people as a viewpoint for receiving them. It was what Paul challenged Peter about, wasn't it? When Peter said, oh, I love everybody. I love Jews and Gentiles alike. But then he would only eat with the Jews in certain times. Paul said that's a problem because you're not demonstrating the love of Christ to those around you if you won't eat with them. So how is the love of God in your life different now because of what Christ has done for you? How how has it changed how you interact with those who maybe don't have a lot of money? Do you connect with them? Do you eat with them? How has the grace of God that you have experienced in your life changed the way that you interact with the incarcerated? Are you willing to connect with them? Are you willing to eat with them when they get out of prison or they get out of jail? Or are we just living safely until Jesus comes? What about the single mother who is struggling to raise her kids? Have have we offered support or do we just sit on the sidelines and critique? He says, Philemon, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother receiving Are you willing to forgive? Has the grace of God, the mercy of God, given you freedom to forgive people in your life? I recently had a conversation with a divorced mother who forgave the father of her kids because of situation in the life. She was left with these children, and she recently forgave that father. Not just forgave him for what, They had to go through as a small family and a young family, but no, she forgave him in a court filing where she forgave over $80,000 of child support that he owed her in a court filing. That's specific. That's what grace should do. I'm not saying that everybody in that situation should do that. But I'm saying that grace should alter the way that you live. Grace should have a reaction in your life. You see, it takes work to allow grace to have its way. Takes work. Grace teaches us. Real grace moves us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So I'm challenging the Calvary Church. I know we are being careful about COVID, but we can't be disconnected as a body. God is calling us, I believe, to a new level of connection and love for one another, something that will be a light to this community. And I know in this polarizing political climate, everyone has a position And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians are boxing themselves in. In my opinion, that is foolishness for the church. We are not a political party. We are a spiritual family. So receive one another. Connect with one another. Love one another. I I would challenge you, and, and again, when I read... Paul's writings, I, I, I don't try to 
take my position as pastor in a way that I, I carry a bully, uh, it's a bully pulpit or uh, I, I carry a bat, but I would challenge you. And again, I haven't been on social media a lot. I check it for messages and things, but I'm not reading and scrolling, so I don't know if somebody's posted something or not. But I would challenge you about posting things that cause you to limit who you can influence with the gospel. I challenge you to avoid posting things that limit who you can influence with the gospel. Which is more valuable? Your position on some cultural idea being known or being able to share with someone how Jesus Christ can overcome sin and the hate in the world. And again, I I, I feel challenged by that. Because I understand and I'm thankful for a free America, a free expression, our freedom of speech. But I'm challenging the church to not create hurdles for people to hear the gospel from you. We need the gospel to be reflected in every area of our life. And so I'm putting out a challenge to the Calvary Church I don't know, I'm just, I, I, I didn't have a lot of time for marketing. It's the Calvary Eating Challenge. Some of you are like, sign me up, we're in. The Calvary Eating Challenge. And in the next two or three weeks, I am challenging you to share a meal with someone who comes to this church that you have never met or don't know very well. And I'm challenging you to find people that are not like you, that are different than you, they don't run in your same circle of influence, post that on social media. Not as a way to brag, but as a way to shine light on the fact that the Calvary Church is a great place to attend, but it's a way better place to belong because we love one another. We receive one another. I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care where you are on your spiritual journey. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care what your native language is. I don't care what your culture is. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I can receive you. If Philemon can receive Onesimus, I can surely receive anybody in this room. And so, let's go to our app time, now that you really want to talk to somebody. <laughs> who is someone that you know? Who is someone that you know that has exemplified living out their Christianity? Not just saying they're Christian, but who is someone that you know that has exemplified living out their Christianity? I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk to somebody around you. All right, app time begins now. Many scholars believe that Philemon was written before the book of Colossians, and there's a reason for that, and it's important. Colossians 4, 7 says, Tychus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, would tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your heart or know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, 
who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. That by the time he wrote this to Colossians, Philemon had done just what he had asked him to do. He had received Onesimus. And he had reconnected Onesimus and let him be a part of what was happening with the gospel message. Because good works make a difference. Good works make a difference. They aren't a means for us to be saved, but they make a difference in other people knowing who Jesus Christ is. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In every letter that Paul wrote, he concluded with the same remark, and I find it meaningful for us today. He would say, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Paul would say at the end of 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said that to him. He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, uh, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grace be with you. Grace be with us. And so I want to pray for us in closing. The grace of God would be alive and well at the Calvary Church. Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the challenge of your word. I thank you for the inspiration of your word, a word that brings life, it brings hope. But Lord, it doesn't leave us to waller in our own uh, self-pity or our own condition, our carnal nature. But Lord, you call us to a higher standard, a standard of grace. God, we don't deserve your grace, but you've given it to us for our weakness and for our calamities and persecutions, Lord. For in our weakness, you are made strong. In the name of Jesus, amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, Thanks for listening.